blanket the Australian state of New South Wales, transforming day into night. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, the upon the levers. terrorism and being followed closely by the state. For the second time in weeks, a young immigrant child has died while in custody of the U.S. We're here to help protect the water for our future generation. We come here to die. We have to. Hey friends, I'm Arnold Schroeder and this is Fight Like an Animal. A few quick notes about me building my empire before we start. Um, please like me on Facebook. Please follow me on Twitter. Fight Like an Animal on Facebook. Fight Like an Animal podcast on Twitter. Um, and, you know, I just, if you're listening to and enjoying this podcast, I really don't want your money. But I do want your love in the form of, uh, of telling anybody in the world, like I don't care if you use social media or not, tell a person who you think might enjoy this. And you'll help me out infinitely. Um, I just don't really fit into any existing niche in the media ecosystem perfectly. I really am trying to speak to people in like somewhat qualitatively different terms than people are talking who aren't already organized into any particular subculture or I'm at least not trying to speak in the terms of any particular subculture that people are organized into that makes this all a huge uphill battle this podcast is sort of an anarchist podcast but it doesn't quite fit into the anarchist media landscape um, people on both the left and the right probably agree with some of what I'm saying, probably appalled by other things that I'm saying. Um, and so, you know, if you think that, if you think that this is a qualitatively different analysis than you're hearing most other places and you think it's worth people checking out, really, you know, people who are already engaged telling other folks about it is kind of the only plausible strategy that I have for growing the audience at all. So that having been said, um, I want to start, I think, today by telling a story that you can listen to and just sort of intuitively know isn't true. Regardless of whether you know much about or anything about the historic references involved, you, there's some intuitive sense you have of how the world works and how people with different belief systems behave that makes this story seem exceptionally implausible. And it's about the Gnostics, the early uh, sect of like, Christian mystics, essentially. So the Gnostics would have met our sense of what a left-wing version of the early Christian church would have been like in a number of crucial respects. They were more tolerant of sexuality. They were, they had less of a rigid gender hierarchy. They were less interested in hierarchy in general. So both in terms of an actual, you know, organization here on earth, uh, less interested in a church hierarchy per se, but then the actual theology of Gnosticism just emphasized obedience to God much less than other forms of Christianity. It was, very much more about um, experiencing divinity in life rather than obeying God for rewards in the afterlife. And um, 
the Gnostics certainly, if we think back to all the evidence we went through in episode one about how people with more egalitarian political outlooks tend to be more open to experience, more um, stimulation seeking, and more prone to seeking out novelty. Um, the Gnostics certainly would have met our definition of a more leftist form of the church in, in those respects because they were mystics. And that's that's what mysticism is, right? It's, it's about experiencing ostensibly oppositional states simultaneously. It's about having a sense of identity with um, multiple beings or all beings and experiencing from all of their disparate, ostensibly irreconcilable perspectives simultaneously. It's about integrating complexity and uh, like sympathizing with all things seeing from all perspectives right you know like the the one of the gnostic texts that gets cite, cited the most is called the thunder perfect mind and it's just a, it's just like a list of these kind of oppositions like this it's like i am the virgin and the whore kind of stuff all throughout so certainly the Gnostics were uh, more open to experience than their counterparts in the more hierarchical uh, forms of Christianity. And so here's the story that you know isn't true, is, uh, you know, eventually the Gnostics got sick of all these other sects of Christianity practicing what they considered to be a false version of Christianity and you know espousing heresies and so they went and they destroyed the other sects of christianity they you know they went and they exterminated entire congregations and they burned places of worship and they destroyed the texts of other early christians and the only reason that we even know about the the more hierarchical forms of christianity that eventually evolved into Catholicism and from there into everything that we you know, call Christianity today. Um, the only reason we know about them is because there were some texts that were buried somewhere in the desert to protect them from this campaign of destruction that the Gnostics went on. And you know, so that's, that's the only insight that we have into the early, more right-wing form of the church. And, you hear this story and you know it's not true because some intuitive sense of what a mystic would do is just not a campaign of extermination against people who see the world differently than they do and as we went through as i hopefully made a somewhat convincing case for in episodes one through four essentially you know if if indeed um, egalitarian versus hierarchical political outlooks are a function of variation and aggression and its correlated traits in the human population, then this is exactly what we would expect to see that there's always been a really huge historic impact of um, of people with more hierarchical political outlooks just doing better at taking control over societies and shaping societies because they're more willing to use violence and aggression and that just is a really effective strategy and so the story that I just told illustrates that because every word of it is true except for the direction of aggression it was not the mystics 
that went on a campaign of extermination. It was the more right-wing, more hierarchical form of Christianity um, that wiped out the Gnostics, just physically destroyed them. And that had everything in the world to do. This early conflict, this early left-right conflict in the Christian church had everything to do with, of course, the form that Christianity itself took, but, but that had everything to do with the form that what we would eventually call Western civilization took, which, uh, you know, had everything to do with how the world has been shaped for a couple millennia now. So that's a good illustration of this basic notion that egalitarian and hierarchical political outlooks statistically do tend to be correlated with differences in how people contend for those political outlooks. And that has everything to do with what the world has ever looked like. And so you can't understand how the world is or how it got the way that it is without understanding that dynamic. But of course, if we content ourselves with simply asking, okay, you know, so in order to create a form of society where anybody or anything has much of a shot at all of surviving, if you know, like if we say that all we need to do is to make the left win over the right, then we're ignoring a bunch of really, really obvious questions like, what about Pol Pot? What about Stalin? You know? Um, so here's another story that if I tell, I think you'll know is true, or at least it won't violate any intuitive sense you have of what might be true, what, you know, what is often true. Um, I grew up in a crazy new age cult, right? And with the typical aesthetic indiscretions of 1980s new agers, this cult was called the Alive Polarity Fellowship and the dude who ran it was named Jefferson Campbell. And this guy was ugly and stupid, right? It's always the case, both in the professional literature and from people who've exited cults, that the leaders are inevitably described as charismatic. And yeah, sure, I guess according to some kind of like real technical criteria, like the dude did in fact manage to make a bunch of people really adore him and, you know, like revere him and obey him. So. I guess that is, you know, it's like if something, if humor is defined by whether it makes somebody laugh, you know, then I, I guess like charisma in some rigorously technical sense was something that this guy possessed, but I didn't really see it. Like to me, he just seemed pretty manifestly stupid and ugly. And, um, you know, he was like very much promoting um, a bunch of like health, a bunch of like miraculous health transformations that he could supposedly affect with the, his great spiritual powers, but he himself was really visibly out of shape. And then, you know, he like, he had like what I just found to be a very, very thin premise of, of spiritual interest, but it seemed to me that he was just manifestly, apparently only really interested in power for the sake of power and uh, you know coercion and harming people because those were his core sort of behavioral psychological impulses and uh, you know he wanted a bunch of money and he wanted to fuck a bunch of people cult leadership right and this is really 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 typical of religious cults is that the the people who operate them i mean yeah again in some sense they're always technically charismatic but from an outsider's perspective 
there's there's just very very often um I don't know, like a a real like what the fuck quality to the whole thing. There's a real sense that the people who manage to, the people who manage to um, get like unquestioning loyalty and obedience from folks tend to be just like very, very obviously flawed in really, really basic ways. And to be like kind of just pathetic and ridiculous people on some really like very immediately apparent kind of surface levels and um and it's just so often the case you know whether you're talking about charles manson or l ron hubbard or whatever that these people have almost nothing going for them except for some really interesting personality traits that make them good at attaining power itself that that is really that's the the sole sense in which they're actually remarkable and they're otherwise real second-rate sci-fi authors or real real second-rate psychedelic rock musicians you know l ron hubbard and charles manson respectively or whatever but that the the other aspects of their of their behavior their lives are just not exceptional. They're not amazing people, except in this regard that they're good at at making people do what they tell them and feeling like they belong to a group that they're the leader of. Um, and the thing that I want to emphasize about this is that, I mean, I don't, I just don't know how to characterize the ideology of the place I grew up. You know, it's just, it was just like a new age hodgepodge. Just take a bunch of a bunch of like uh, long-standing traditions, vague intuitions, quasi-science, quasi-psychology, pop, whatever, nonsense, throw it all at the wall, see what sticks, call it an ideology. I mean, you know, there was a little bit of body work, there was a little bit of reincarnation, there was some auras, there was some chakras, whatever. But the thing that I want to emphasize is that what made this dude who ran this cult insidious is not really reducible to ideology. There were a bunch of other people around who uh, who believed the same kind of basic random grab bag of nonsense as the guy in charge, who if they had been in positions of similar power would not have instituted the arranged marriages and the strict rules against contact with the outside society and the fucking child torture and just all the like all the really just horrible like comic book villain shit that the dude who actually was in charge instituted and so that illustrates i think that what made him good at attaining power also made him the kind of person you really wouldn't want to have power. So that's kind of what we're trying to talk about today. We've talked a lot about how some psychological traits correlate really strongly with ideological outlook, but a number of other psychological, there's a number of other very important ways in which people vary. Um, and, you know, there's a pretty, like, solid research foundation for, uh, for this variation. There's both, you know, differences in how people respond to questionnaires, but that can totally be correlated with differences in their brain activity and their brain structures. Um, and some of these variations, I think, 
reduce a lot of the dynamics of power that we see over and over and over again that are so insidious that really have nothing to do with ideology because you know like it's certainly been the case we look at like the whole vast sweep of the 20th century um, you know, there were a number of revolutions that came and went in societies while the societies themselves remained largely unchanged. You know, supposedly the 20th century was this epoch of like conflict between these radically disparate ideologies. But uh, was it? I mean, really, was it? Or was the ideology ultimately kind of like was the functional behavioral paradigm of those in power essentially the same everywhere that there was a major concentration of power and was the ideology kind of all just a little bit of like a post-hoc embellishment i mean if we you know if we look at the conflict between the the soviet bloc the communist bloc and capitalism at large in the United States of America and that empire, I mean, ah, the there's supposedly all this radical, like these are supposedly radically ideologically opposed societies, but if you if you disregard ideology and you just measure the societies according to like some more objective metrics, like the level of coercion, that was present in the society, the level of um, the level of coercion that was necessary to affect the social structure, or the level of inequality, both inequality of power and material inequality, these societies all converge on on the same features. They're all essentially and fundamentally similar, and so you know, I mean, like the capitalist civilization that I live in. That I'm assuming you live in as well um, is in profound crisis but I think that as people continue to kind of churn around vague notions of vague left revolutions as sort of the only alternative I think there's some sense in which almost nobody can really feel that much excitement about these prospects because this shit has been tried before and so you know some part of our some part of ourselves is, is always asking like well what is going to be different this time why you know like not not can we have a revolution but the question people are asking themselves ultimately is can we have a revolution and in the process not become monsters i think if one is at all willing to entertain some level of like political heterodoxy some if one is sort of open to assessing different political ideas there's plenty of ideological systems out there that all sound perfectly potentially reasonable on paper i mean like i think the united states of america is destroying the world but the actual premise, like the on paper premise, like, you know, everybody's equal. We're the land of the free or whatever. Yeah, I mean, sure. Okay, fine. Sounds great. Um, uh, sure, you know, like communism on paper, great. Um, but I think, that, I think that Vladimir Putin, in a way, really illustrates how little ideology actually means in the functions and the manifestations of power that actually occur in the world. Because Putin really sees himself, I mean, some commentators have described 
Putin as post-ideological because he's so lacking in any ideological premise, really as a person as well as in his public political life, um, and, and really just is sort of interested in power for the sake of power. And, you know, so that's described as post-ideological, but I've quipped before that one could also really describe that as pre-ideological. That's just also what systems of power were before people bothered with all these ideological pretenses that turn out to not be very predictive of how societies actually are anyway. Um, and, but, you know, so Putin sees a fundamental continuity between czarism, Stalinism, and himself. He's, you know, to him and I, to so many people who are really politically engaged, from political scientists to people who are in grassroots movements of a huge number of ideological persuasions, you know, that, that continuity doesn't exist. They, they would ex perceive these different, uh, these different ruling entities as radically different, as supposedly embracing just like wildly disparate worldviews and that either any of those entities having power, having like radically different implications for people. But the simple fact is, is that they really didn't have radically different implications for people. There has just actually been like Putin is right. There is just a totally fundamental continuity between between czarism, Stalinism, and his own regime. There, there is, you know, the, the, the actual structural features of the societies that those rulers um, inhabited that actually really like matter to people that, that determine, you know, like whether people, like what people's lives are like, kind of just, you know, like actually pretty unvarying. So I think that a core sort of distinction that I would make in this body of theory that is coming out in this podcast from almost all other political analysis that I've ever seen is that I think that almost everybody, wherever they are ideologically, tends to emphasize ideology itself as the fundamental predictor of what's happening politically what ideologies are possessed by those in power, what ideologies underlie the actual structures of social organization and power is supposed to imply everything about what a society is actually like. And I am advocating for the notion that we accept the empirical reality that we're all kind of familiar with, that it's actually just really not that predictive at all. And we choose to focus instead on the psychology of those in power. So if we look at the world that way, if we're thinking essentially, yeah, I don't really care if I go to the Nazi camp or the communist camp, I just kind of don't want to be put in a camp. Um, and we're asking like, what is it about people that puts people in camps essentially? Uh, you know, like why the atrocities regardless of the ideology, if we're feeling little skeptical of the kids who are sharing the Stalin memes on the internet these days and claiming that, you know, all that's necessary to remedy the world's problems is some rigid left ideological program. And it sounds an awful lot like some shit that people have already talked for more than a century and that often didn't go very well. 
I think that a core, you know, like the most obvious thing that we can say about people in power, whatever their ideology happens to be, who've committed really grievous harms, is that they seem to just kind of lack some very basic empathy. And that is a phenomenon that's really well studied. Um, it's, there's a fucking wilderness of different conceptualizations of these kind of same basic traits. Some version of psychopathy is usually uh, the term that gets used to describe it. And then there's just kind of an infinite number of like very, very highly related, but ultimately like kind of conceptually distinct scales of psychopathy and different like measurements of different aspects of it. Um, and it's not something that to my knowledge has been extensively studied in like world leaders historically or you know dictators in nations that were on genocidal paths or anything like that um, it's it's just actually best studied in this society in among people uh, who are either in the criminal justice system or in positions of significant power particularly in the corporate power structure and this is kind of this is probably familiar uh, Ron Johnson in particular popularized an understanding that psychopathy is particularly prevalent uh, within large within people with like a lot of power and large corporations he wrote that book the psychopath test and so you know there's that like there was definitely like an, a bunch of mass media pieces that were like shockingly like you would never think it was true but it turns out people who run corporations are technically psychopaths in a lot of cases but you know it is it's it's true and um one of the scales that gets used a lot just to give kind of an indication of like what sort of things people respond to for these scorings um although high scores high psychopathy scores do have neural signatures there are ways to look at people's brains and say like yep they weren't making up those responses but so like the self-report psychopathy scale asks questions like love is overrated or asks for a response to statements like love is overrated or even if i were trying very hard to sell something i wouldn't lie about it a related scale is the psychopathy checklist, and that consists of like a semi-structured interview. Uh, there's not like a predetermined list of questions per se, and it measures a bunch of different elements of psychopathy. Um, for instance, a grandiose sense of self-worth, and then a callousness slash lack of empathy callousness slash lack of empathy is totally universal to all of these different psychopathy scales i'd say that a bunch of them especially the ones that are i mean they're all used for like criminal populations and so there's always these aspects that are about impulsivity like lack of lack of be capacity for behavioral regulation and then there's always a dimension that is a lack of empathy um and a bunch of studies do note the higher proportion of people who are technically psychopaths who score above the threshold where they classify somebody as a psychopath or not quite there but still much higher than the average person who are in positions of corporate power uh, there's a 2010 paper that i read that found five they they interviewed 
a couple hundred people from a bunch of different major corporations in North America. And they found that just about 6% of the people in the corporate sample had really significantly higher than usual psychopathy scores um, compared to about 1.2% of just kind of like the population at large. And then 3% of this corporate population were technical psychopaths. They were above that threshold where they get designated a psychopath. And only 0.3% of the population at large is like that. And you know, so and then there's other papers that have been written. There's a 2011 paper called "The Corporate Psychopaths Theory of the Global Financial Crisis" in the Journal of Business Ethics. It's kind of one of those papers where you know, like the title is about all you have to read to understand the paper. If you have any any understanding of the the background, you know, like the theory is in fact that. The reason the global financial crisis happened is because people in very, very profound positions of power uh, neither have empathy nor really a capacity to regulate their own behavior out of self-interest, that they have, that they experience like a very impulsive form of self-interest that uh, requires like very, very immediate gratification, often just completely at the expense of any long term. I mean, although, granted, all those people got away with destroying tons of people's lives without any significant consequences for the most part, but it still kind of like crashed the system that was getting them rich. It was still experienced as a crisis by the people who perpetuated the crisis. There are also psychological constructs that involve a lack of empathy, but don't have as much of that inability to regulate one's behavior. Uh, where people are more scheming and more calculating. So there's a cluster of traits called the dark triad. Um, one of them is psychopathy per se. One of them is narcissism. So very similar in terms of it still has the fundamental property of a total lack of empathy, but there tends to be more of an emphasis on self-aggrandizing uh, behavior and um, often kind of like a really profound sense of insecurity underlying behavior. And then there's Machiavellianism. That's, that's a psychological construct. And again, this maps to differences in brain activity. People, people who score higher on, on Machiavellianism in experiments where they are monitoring per other people's perceptions of them and navigating systems of rewards and punishments to achieve some end, they, their brains look different than people who don't score high on Machiavellianism. And again, this involves a total lack of empathy, but unlike psychopathy and narcissism, it also involves a lot of perception management and a lot of calculation and um, prolonged foresight strategy, as one would assume, right? Um, so to quote, to quote one of these papers, whereas psychopaths act impulsively, abandon friends and family, and pay little attention to their reputations, Machiavellians plan ahead, build alliances, and do their best to maintain a positive reputation. So. 
As far as people who are in power are concerned, if we wanted to just toss around some pretty seemingly plausible on their surface psychological constructs that might be useful for describing a lot of these people, people who totally lack empathy but seem particularly skilled at, um, at manipulating other people and managing perceptions of other people and saying what needs to be said in order to, uh, in order to kind of like uh, gain people's trust and affinity and then harm them in some way. <laughs> I mean, you know, like that, that would seem to be a pretty decent match. On some level, it seems like so much of the liberal establishment and like establishment politics, establishment politicians' aversion to Donald Trump is sort of the aversion of a bunch of Machiavellians to an outright narcissist. It's a bunch of people who totally lack empathy, who are really calculating and really strategic, who are horrified by the presence of somebody in power who totally lacks empathy but is just kind of impulsive and self-aggrandizing for no good reason and all over the place. Um, and then the same paper talking about narcissism says that compared, this paper on the dark triad says, compared with other measures, the key element in the narcissistic personality inventory appears to be grandiosity. In two-factor solutions, one is variously labeled leadership or authority, self-attributed leadership or authority, and the other, entitlement. Again, a psychological construct that seems awfully salient to pe some people in power. And uh, taking these surveys that they use to, to score people according to all these different psychological constructs is, is pretty fun. I, I took like, I just binged on psychometrics uh, while I was preparing for this episode, um, I took like I, you know, I, I took like a couple dozen different psychological tests. Um, if you want to, if you want to do the same thing, I highly recommend OpenPsychometrics.com. Um, they've got all the big ones there. But it can be easy to feel a little uncertain when you take these tests how much they actually uh, measure anything inherent in our brains. Uh, but, but like I said, um, scores on these tests do have really strong correlations with differences in brain activity. And um, maybe that's not surprising because the big five personality inventory, which we talked about in episode one, is something that's found in other species. It's been, it's been described in a number of other species. But um, as far as humans are concerned, a good window into the relationship between scores on psychological survey instruments and brain activity is this 2013 study called Neural Correlates of Four Broad Temperament Dimensions. And the broad temperaments are curious slash energetic, cautious slash social norm compliant, analytical slash tough minded, and pro-social slash empathetic. Um, and the authors hypothesize that there's four different neurotransmitter systems that are responsible for variation in these four temperaments. So they think that the empathetic pro-social temperament that, you know, they, I forget how many questions are on this survey. It's called the Fisherman 
the Fisher temperament inventory. Um, but you know, it's like, it's like 50 questions or something. And, um, and so they think that, uh, scores on the pro-social empathetic dimension of the test, uh, correspond to the activity of oxytocin and estrogen, the analytical tough-minded dimension of the test corresponding to testosterone, the cautious slash social norm compliant dimension of the test corresponding to serotonin, and the curious slash energetic section of the test corresponding to dopamine. Um, and so a scenario like that would produce distinct patterns of activity. If, if scores on this test were in some way related to the activity of these neurotransmitters, we would see this because um, it would produce distinct patterns of activity in people's brains if they had different levels of these neurotransmitters uh, in circulation because certain regions of the brain are associated with certain neurotransmitters more so than others. And uh, so they gave people who scored, um, they took people's scores from this test and related them to their brain activity while they were all performing this other kind of unrelated, like neutral activity as far as the questions on the tests are, are concerned where they're just looking at images of their lover actually and thinking about, uh, thinking about a person they're in love with. They have different, but when people are engaging in the same task, they have different patterns of activity uh, based on that are highly correlated with scores on their test um, that indicate that are in regions, in brain regions that indicate these neurotransmitter systems could be involved. So, for instance, uh, people who scored high high on the empathetic uh, pro-social dimension of the test had higher activity in the fusiform gyrus and the anterior insula. People who scored highly on the social norm compliant dimension of the test had more activity in the ventrolateral prefrontal cortex. And as far as these personality traits and a tendency to be particularly good at attaining positions of power go, or succeeding in society as it's set up currently go. Um, there's this 2007 paper called The Neural Signature of Social Norm Compliance, um, which is also in the same domain of you know, relating brain activity to scores on psychometrics, including Machiavellianism. And the actual study involved uh, participants playing a game that had a real financial reward and penalty system set up. They could, they could actually make money playing the game. And the people who made the most money playing the game had the highest Machiavellianism scores. Uh, the game itself is like a little complicated. It's a little, it would be a little tedious to describe in detail, but essentially it involved uh, iterations of the same scenario in some of which there was somebody monitoring the scenario who could exact a penalty on the player who had control over the situation if they thought what they were doing is unfair. And people with the highest Machiavellianism scores tended to behave very fairly when they were being monitored and therefore to incur no penalty to basically split the potential monetary rewards perfectly evenly and then when they weren't being monitored to take all the money for themselves. 
And so people with the highest Machiavellianism scores made the most money in the study. And then they also showed um, the Machiavellianism scores were strongly correlated with um, activation in the OFC, the lateral OFC, which is a brain region involved in the evaluation of punishing stimuli, and strong activity in the insula, which measures a sense of threat and internal states related to pain. Um, some people hypothesize that the insula integrates a conscious awareness of an external threat with kind of like an internal evaluation of what the threat would feel like. Um, so people with high Machiavellianism scores just tended to exhibit more brain activity related to uh, being monitored by other people and experiencing consequences for their actions. So again, remembering that pe people with high Machiavellianism scores lack empathy, but they, they show a, a distinct neural signature of hyper-awareness of people's perceptions of them and of the potential social consequences of their action of their actions sound, you know, sound anything like a politician to you? I also thought that the analytical tough-minded dimension of that study we were just talking about, uh, the neural correlates of four broad temperament dimension study was really interesting in terms of assessing politics and positions of power. So of those four temperaments, it was by far the most common for people to score the highest in either the pro-social empathetic dimension or the uh, cautious slash social norm compliant dimension. And then um, not that many people scored highest in the analytical tough-minded dimension. But also, I'd also say that that seems like a really necessary characteristic of at least some of the people who are shaping societies and wielding, you know, significant forms of power, wh whatever that looks like, whatever kind of political system is involved. Um, I think that my experience of a lot of egalitarian politics, a lot of like movement politics, um, people with big hearts, like there's a lot of people involved who have a whole lot of empathy but really do seem to kind of lack much of a willingness to examine aspects of the world that make them uncomfortable. Like leftism really just seems to be this kind of minefield of things that uh, don't get talked about or get explicitly denied um, or just like kind of can't be acknowledged, like weird gray, gray areas. And there, you know, so there's like a lot of emphasis on empathy, but you know, ultimately, in order to construct anything coherent, in, in order to construct a society, an analysis, um, a path for people to take that has any kind of relationship with reality at all, you have to be willing to acknowledge things that you don't like, right? That's that to me is like one of the most one of the most meaningful and under-examined distinctions between people is, you know, people whose perceptions of the world exclusively correspond to their psychological and emotional needs and people who have undergone some analytical process where at some point they, they encountered a reality where they were like, oh, I don't actually like the way this feels, but this appears to be part of how the world is. 
and so I should integrate it into my overall understanding of the world and uh, see what possibilities exist from that perspective. And, you know, so like I think that this is certainly particularly true of, of ecological realities. Like I think that there is just a really core necessity for there to be some people shaping societies who are less concerned with their own immediate senses of self-interest and tend to see themselves and everybody else as part of something much bigger that um, that doesn't have their that just doesn't exist on their terms or have their interests as its exclusive sort of like premise for functioning this touches on the sense in which um, a really like fundamentally ecological perception of the world and mysticism are very overlapping constructs. There's a scale called the mystical orientation scale, a psychological metric. Um, and you know, it asks a bunch of questions that are awfully similar to questions that are, or measures a bunch of perceptual states that are awfully similar to those measured by a scale called the nature relatedness scale which, like it sounds, just measures people's sense of relationship with nature. So the mystical orientation scale involves states like uh, losing my everyday self in a greater being and feeling my everyday self absorbed in the depths of being and feeling at one with all living beings and sensing the unity in all things. And then the nature relatedness scale to read a quote from a paper describing it. Nature relatedness is similar to the notion of an ecological identity, a sense of self that includes nature, but is a broader concept encompassing emotions, experiences, and an understanding of human interconnectedness with all other living things. Nature relatedness is not simply a love of nature, or enjoyment of only the superficially pleasing facets of nature, but rather an awareness and understanding of all aspects of the natural world, even those that are not aesthetically appealing or useful to humans. And so again, you know, like I think that I think that there's this paradoxical truth, which is that human well-being kind of never occurs when human well-being is the sole focus that one, just is true at the individual scale too, right? If you, it's pretty well studied that if you're solely concerned with um, immediate self-interest, you statistically tend not to be as happy as if you concern yourself with um, the welfare of others. Then likewise, at the scale of entire human societies and like in the whole hum vast human endeavor itself, I think that human well-being is, however paradoxically it may feel, totally incompatible with states of mind and orientations where human well-being is the sole emphasis. So I think that these psychological dimensions that scales like the nature relatedness scale or the mystical orientation scale measure a sense of humanity as part of something that's bigger than it and more important than it that doesn't, whose dynamics are not governed by any like or dislike of humans or orientation to our interests at all 
is I think that a, a sense like that is crucial for some people to possess for societies to function and for, for human well-being to exist. I think that um, the most immediate way that we can see that this, you, this applies to our current situation is with the ecological trajectory. Um, obviously those in power completely, completely lack the sense of humans as part of a broader world that exists on its own terms. But then also in a more immediate sense, I mean, I just think that as I tried to illustrate at the beginning, you know, I think that we're all pretty weary as we, t we talk about revolution, but we're all pretty weary from the history of revolutions that we are all at least somewhat familiar with. You know, everybody knows of both right and left wing campaigns of extermination, but I think pretty much nobody's ever heard of a genocidal mystic. So, you know, we touched on a bunch of different aspects of human psychological variation that are all perfectly interesting and important in their own right. Um, empathy, uh, Machiavellianism, and a tendency to be calculating, um, a sense of connection with something greater than oneself, uh, being analytical and tough-minded. Um, but I think that more important than any of these individual dimensions of psychological variation on their own, I, um, I just do want to convey, I want to return to kind of the core premise of talking about any of this in the first place, which is just that as, as science progresses, we are mapping out an incredibly rich landscape of very important uh, intrinsic differences between people in behavior and perception. And we're, we're seeing that the human species is just this incredibly complex constellation of different cognitive tribes. And how societies have typically been structured involves especially you know in in any society i think in particular with like a fair amount of technology a fair amount of social complexity they involve really small numbers of people having a very outsized impact on on what forms those societies take and i think that the traits that have tended to allow people to have an outsized capacity to shape society are also traits that make the, it catastrophic for them to be in those positions of power. And we have tended, as we have tried to envision different forms of society, to reduce that to ideology, to say, okay, well, this person is a monster and is ruining our lives and destroying everything and they have this sort of general premise to their power so let's adopt a radically different premise and assume that society will be radically different but over and over again we find that the dynamics of power are relatively constant and unvarying regardless of the ideology and i think that we need to start looking at all of this i think that pol what politics is if it's going to be anything meaningful is an assessment of all this profound variation that exists in our species and an assessment of how different types of people are taking different kinds of power. And I think that if we are going to have a revolution 
or envision a society that is better than the one we currently live in, i.e., for instance, one that would produce any possibility of anybody or anything being alive in a hundred years. Um, we are going to have to look really, really far beyond what people say they value as a as like a fundamental determinant of how things are going to be. This, if, this, if anything, if if it taught us any lesson, this should be exactly what liberalism has taught us. Right? Is that is that people saying something, people s talking about their values and their and their political aspirations? It's just a really poor indicator of what they actually do. And so, I don't know exactly what it means to begin trying to actually intervene in the fabric of society based on an understanding of something that unites us beyond these somewhat abstract like belief systems or whatever. But I do think that, I mean, you know, the internet is a magical place. On some level, it is itself a map of all the exquisite cognitive variation that exists in our species. Um, and I do think it's plausible for us to start conceiving of mechanisms whereby we can organize around premises other than all wanting to stop climate change or, you know, believing in material equality or whatever. Because, I mean, anybody who has any experience showing up at a meeting or coming, you know, knows that 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 as a frame, that as like a unifying feature that's supposed to um, cohere people into some kind of useful entity doesn't really work. Any, anybody who's done any politics knows that you just spend most of your time arguing with people who you're supposedly working towards the same end with. Um, and I think that, I think that organizing more around psychology than ideology would not only produce a much better chance of actually producing like useful long-term sociopolitical outcomes, but I also think that it would just make the experience of trying to get there a lot less agonizing and terrible because people who had an actual perceptual, like the, the question would be how to unify people who have an actual perceptual affinity. And, um, and that is ultimately a psychological question. There's a relationship between psychology and ideology, but it's very imperfect and it's very statistical. And so that, I guess, is where I'm going to leave it for today. And when I return, I'm going to try to apply this theory on a much more, on a much more local level. I'm going to examine the psychology of one particular kind of like tactical and strategic domain, that of the world of espionage, and ask what social movements could learn from the uh, horrible depravities of that particular form of statecraft. So until then, friends, uh, like me on social media and all that, and oh, I want to give a shout out before I go real quickly to SciHub.tw. Sci slash hub, S-C-I slash hub.tw 
is the the sole reason that I can cite so many scientific papers. It's one of those repositories of scientific papers that you might otherwise find behind a paywall that some clever hackers um, maintain. And it is a truly invaluable resource that the, like literally this, this podcast just wouldn't exist if I didn't have access to something like that. So I just want I just want to say thank you, Sci-Hub. And if you yourself are looking for papers and don't have aren't enrolled in school and don't have, you know, like $50 a paper to shell out, check out Sci-Hub. And if you're looking for something amazing to support financially, maybe toss them some some dollars. So, okay, friends, I will talk to you again soon. Thank <laughs> you.